Rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisoluhoko, and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. Ghana's presidential candidates make their final push for votes. Kenyan rival political parties launch election campaigns. And South Africa remembers former President Nelson Mandela. In economics news, Egyptian lenders seek central bank guaranteed syndicated loan. And in sports news, South Africa beat Fiji to win World 7 Series opener. But first up, the news with Anusa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Gambia's president-elect Adama Barrow says he's keen to form a new cabinet to get cracking with reforms. At the weekend, veteran leader Yaya Jema stunned the West African nation by conceding defeat in the presidential election. Jema's statement on state radio sparked wild celebrations in a country he has ruled since taking power in a coup 22 years ago. The official results gave Barrow, a real estate developer who once worked as a security guard in London, 45.5% of the vote against Jema's 36.7%. South African Opposition Party, the Democratic Alliance, says Chairperson of Parliament's Police Portfolio Committee, Francois Bjorkman, must request that the report into suspended National Police Commissioner Ria Piecha's fitness to hold office be tabled in Parliament. The class and inquiry reportedly found that Piecha was not fit to hold office and should be dismissed. The DA Shadow Minister of Police, Akele Mbele, says while his party welcomes the findings, it maintains that the inquiry's terms of reference should have been widened to include all of Piecha's alleged failings during her tenure. We welcome the conclusion of the Clausen Board of Inquiry as well as its finding in its reports that suspended National Commissioner Ria Piecha is unfit for office. This is an argument we have made for a long time and consistently um, given the decline of the police service uh, that she has presided over during her term. Um, and we're now calling that this report must be tabled in Parliament, uh, in particular to be referred to the Police Portfolio Committee. Outgoing African Union Commission Chairperson Ngosazana Tlamini Zuma believes that those critical of the late Cuban leader Fidel Castro probably don't welcome the progress Cubans have made under his leadership. Earlier, Cuban President Raul Castro led final tributes to his brother at a ceremony which thousands of people, including world leaders, attended. Tlamini Zuma explains. Yes, there may be people who don't like him, but probably they also don't like the progress that Cubans have made. They probably don't have the same record in terms of investing in human beings. Yes, it's okay to fight for freedom of speech, but what freedom of speech will you have if you are hungry, you are illiterate, 
you don't have shelter, you haven't got health services, what freedom of... So I think these things must be taken into context. Um, and so you can see the Cuban people are very sad that he has gone, but they love him. Meanwhile, Fidel Castro's ashes have been incurred in a private ceremony ending a week-long national mourning period. Sharon Bryce-Peace reports. A military cortege left the Revolution Plaza in Santiago before sunrise and headed to the famed Santa Isidonia Cemetery with a three-kilometer route lined with thousands of people also waving the Cuban flag and shouting, Long live Fidel. At 7 a.m. local time, a 21-gun salute could be heard in both Santiago and in the capital, Havana, while crowds at the entrance to the cemetery began singing the national anthem. The ceremony reportedly lasted about one hour and was held away from the public eye and without any live television coverage, with plans to broadcast some of the Sombe event on national and international stations cancelled at the last minute. And finally, Tanzanian officials say refugee camps in the country are almost full to capacity. The number of refugees is expected to rise to more than 280,000 before the end of this year. MSF for Doctors Without Borders say despite warnings earlier this year, little has been done. MSF's Head of Communications, Bori Lagrange. Since 2015, the situation in Burundi has deteriorated significantly and several hundred thousand people have decided that their living situation wasn't safe and this then prompted them to take quite risky decisions sometimes crossing by boat to reach uh, Tanzania and to seek safety and refuge. What we know is that people will be particularly vulnerable to malaria infection and this is very true for pregnant women and young children. For our own response in terms of providing medical care, we're in a very fortunate position being independently funded by private individuals. So normal people are deciding to donate to Doctors Without Borders. This allows our work to be independent, also to respond really rapidly. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far East Africa. Ghana's main presidential contenders made their final push for votes on Sunday ahead of the country's general election slated for Wednesday. The presidential race is expected to hot to be hotly contested between incumbent President John Dramani Mahama and the opposition's Nana Akufo-Addo. Akufo-Addo held his final campaign rally in the capital, Accra, attended by thousands of his supporters. The European Union Elections Observation Mission says the signing of a peace accord by all seven presidential candidates last week will ensure leaders accept the outcome of the elections. Sarah Kimani has more. Yes, 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 yes. 
On the streets of Accra, supporters of opposition leader Nana Kufo Ado prepare for his major last campaign rally in the capital later Sunday afternoon. Akufo Ado is the head of the new Patriotic Party, NPP, and a former foreign affairs minister. He is placing his hopes for a win on voter discontent over high inflation, frequent electricity cuts, and corruption under President Mahama. I'll give all to Nana Ado because I want change. That's why I want to vote for change. Because change is everywhere. America, they change their government. Even last time, uh, even four days or three days today, an, an African country changed their government. The government who have been there for 22 years, it have been changed. So why come Mama eight years? We want to change Mama, we will change Mama. And we Ghanaians will change Mama, and Mama will say that we have changed him. So me too, I will support Nana so that Nana have a better future. For President Mahama of the National Democratic Congress, NDC, will campaign in the capital Accra on Monday. He says the economy is expected to recover following various austerity measures that his government has taken. The race, according to opinion polls, is tight and might even go to a runoff between Mahama and Akufo Ado. Presidential contenders have signed a peace accord to accept the outcome of the polls. The European Union Observation Mission want them to keep their word. Tamas Mezarik is the chief observer of the EU mission to Ghana. The declaration itself is an important step, partly because it's an important signal coming from all the candidates, and this is why it is important that all uh, should sign, coming from all the candidates, that everybody is committed to uh, peaceful elections. Um, this is 15.7 million voters are expected to the polls come Wednesday. Participating in the democratic process is one of the most important rights uh, of individuals uh, and the democracy is uh, uh, valuable as long as people are willing to participate in this. So first of all, they should go uh, to to their polling stations uh, and second, in line obviously with uh, the Accra Declaration, everybody should be aware that the peaceful nature of elections is a unique asset that Ghana should preserve at all costs. While Nana Kufo Ado will be making a third attempt at the presidency, having lost in the previous two elections, President Mahama will be seeking a second term with a promise to transform the economy and create more jobs. Akufo Ado is campaigning on a platform of change. Sarah Kimani, Accra, Ghana. As Kenya prepares to hold general elections in August next year, political leaders from two major rival parties, Jubilee and Kord, have started campaigning in different parts of Kenya. President Uhuru Kenyatta, who has already indicated that he will run for a second term for the presidential seat, says he will retain power. Diana Wanyongi has more. Speaking on Saturday during the leadership summit on the 2017 polls in Kwale County on Kenya's south coast, President Uhuru Kenyatta said that he is committed to ensure that political aspirants in the Jubilee Party are campaigning peacefully to avoid political skirmishes similar to that in 2007-2008 during which many Kenyans were killed. The summit was organized by the Kenya Private Sector Alliance. We have a role to tidy up our home our home which is Kenya, and to tell a good story about ourselves to the rest of the world. To the 2013 general elections, many leaders pledged their commitment to peaceful elections and incorporated peace messaging in their campaign messages. I today, therefore, am making a firm commitment on my own behalf, on behalf of my fellow party members, to conduct a peaceful campaign. On peace and security, President Kenyatta urged Kenyans, and especially the youths, to be peaceful in the run into the elections 
saying that politics should not divide Kenyans. I cannot fail to overemphasize require peace, security, and unity of purpose. And therefore, we should not allow electoral violence to define our politics. Our politics must not be personality-based, but issue-based. We can disagree on issues, but this should not be the basis for personal hatred. Holding free and fair elections leads to the establishment of a legitimate government. Ensuring a free, fair, transparent, and credible election process is therefore the first goal that we must all together commit to. Though the code party leader Raila Odinga skipped the summit at Yokunda, President Kenyatta did not miss his words to his rival in stressing the need for code to also engage in a peaceful campaign. I urge you as KEPSA to continue engaging with some of our other colleagues so that they too may consider signing up to this pledge and most importantly work together with all of us towards peaceful elections. Justin Muturi, the Speaker of Kenya's National Assembly, urged all political leaders to be committed to avoid matters that will tear Kenyans apart. It is important that at the national leadership we assure Kenyans that elections must never and should not tear the country apart. We must give assurance to the citizenry of this country that what will happen is not new, as always happened for the longest period many of us will remember. This summit must be seen in that light, that we are committed to improving our democracy. And it is not possible, it cannot be possible for us to do that in the absence of peace. President Kenyatta led other political leaders in signing a peace pledge as a way of showing in commitment to peaceful elections in 2017. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. Let's go back in time to today in the year 1934. Clashes break out between Italian and Ethiopian troops on Somaliland border. That was today in history in the year 1934. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.14 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, veterans of South Africa's ruling African National Congress in the Cape Town area say leaders must reflect on whether they are following in the footsteps of former President Nelson Mandela. Party members gathered in Athlone last night to remember Madiba on the third anniversary of his death. Tandiswa Mao reports. There was an outpouring of grief when the first president of the Democratic South Africa died on this day three years ago. Last night, members and supporters of the ANC lit candles and observed a moment of silence in his honor. 
Rivonia trialist Dennis Goldberg says Madiba was a true leader. He was modest. He wasn't flashy. There were no stories of big parties and dancing girls and wasting money. And This was a sober person who had a joyful life. Deputy Minister of Rural Development Mkabisi Squacha says Mandela remains the country's moral compass. When Mandela spoke, when the ANC leadership spoke, we would follow it. We regarded that leadership as beyond reproach. We knew that this is an honest, committed leadership, committed to the ideals of creating a better society for all of us. But that is not the situation today. What kind of introspection can we make out of that? What kind of people are we? Because today, if the religious community tells us that we are wrong, we look for other religious community somewhere else so that they can clap for us. Deputy Minister of Human Settlements, Zoukota Frederick, says the name of Madiba ignites memories of heroism and bravery. He wanted us to be united in harmony, irrespective of race, color or creed. So he's the type of a person who will go all out to help South Africans, but also the first president of democratic South Africa. I think it was critical to have a leader like that. Madiba was 95 when he died on the 5th of December in 2013. Commemorations will take place throughout the country. I'm Tandiswamawi in Cape Town. We, the people of South Africa, feel fulfilled that humanity has taken us back into its bosom. The world has seen how deeply he believes in freedom, human dignity, and the right of the individual to fulfill his or her dream. I think for the rest of the world, his legacy will be the symbolism of his own character of his extraordinary gift for forgiveness and reconciliation. Nelson Mandela is a living embodiment of the highest values of the United Nations. Nelson Mandela, South Africa's giant in history. A Cuban-American scholar believes late President Fidel Castro Ruz is admired in many parts of the developing world not because of the communist social and political system he introduced in Cuba, but more with his anti-imperialist stance that largely defined his years in office. Samuel Faber, a professor emeritus in political science at the City University of New York, was born and raised in Cuba and is a noted author on Cuba's revolution and its major players. And as Cubans line the streets of the island nation to catch a glimpse of the cottage transporting the ashes of a late Cuban icon to his final resting place, there's already a sense that the Cuban identity Commandant Fidel fought so hard to maintain has already begun to change. Show and Bryce Peace reports. As Fidel Castro's ashes make the three-day journey across the island, hundreds line the streets to bid farewell to a man many here could never imagine Cuba without. This medical student explains that they owe everything to their commander, education, health, all of the revolution. Thank you, she says. Wherever you are, we will always have you in our hearts. And while the adoration of Fidel is by no means universal, experts agree that he was a consummate politician 
and a tactician of the highest order. Fidel Castro was a, a thorough political being. Author and political scientist Samuel Faber. From the top hair in his head to, to his feet. He had a, and I, and I contrast him with Che Guevara, for example. You know, che Guevara had absolutely no political, he was totally done deaf uh, for political situations. So I can use Che Guevara as, one, at, as the counterpart of Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro was all politics, it was all the conjuncture, it was the relation of forces at any given point in time, and what is, you know, how is the wind, how is the political wind blowing, and how, and to sniff it, if you will, because it, 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 it you know, to, to, to feel it, to sense it. Faber argues that the failing economic blockade imposed by the United States over five decades ago, a policy he calls both criminal and immoral, did not have the desired effect. While imposing economic hardships on the Cuban people and the government, it did not bring about the second revolution that would topple Castro. All because of a U.S. law passed in 1966 that allowed Cubans who escaped to the U.S. mainland to be granted permanent residency in one year. With such a policy, uh, it had one result that was unanticipated. A lot of the discontent in Cuba went through the escape valve of, of getting out of the country. And, uh, and that was not, again, what the United States anticipated. So that helped a lot to stabilize the, the situation in Cuba because a lot of the discontented people, political, economical, whatever kind of discontent, left. While his military forays into parts of Africa won him many friends in that region, or later when the island of 11 million became a developmental force dispatching Cuban doctors and engineers to different parts of the world, it was his defiance over the American superpower that made Fidel immensely popular around the world, more so than the socialist policies he implemented at home. A lot of the global south or developing world has uh, sympathy for Castro. By and large, I think, has not much to do with communism as a social, economic, or political system. It has to do with anti-imperialism. And the two things are not the same uh, by any means. Uh, and that's where a lot of this, and I, I'm seeing it now, you know, in reaction to the death of Fidel Castro. It's a very educational. Uh, I follow Facebook, for example, and, and, and left-wing press. And it's very interesting that uh, the reactions you get from people from different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. and, and it's that definite strain of people who come from Latin America, Asia, and Africa who see something different in Fidel Castro, uh, all the people who are more conventional, uh, capital C communists, uh, would see in Fidel Castro. They don't see him as a communist uh, leader as, some, as much as an anti-imperialist leader. And that, I think, is, is a clear difference that has to be made. Revolution is sentido del momento histórico. As Cuba's metamorphosis continues, with the government slowly loosening its tight grip on the economy, how will this change reflect the legacy of a man who fought so hard for the country to follow a certain path? In terms of, the, of national sovereignty, which probably is the one area where his legacy was uh, most clear and not ambiguous, uh, there too there is likely to be a, a, a retreat. Because it, to the extent that Cuba, which is a country, a small country of 11 million people, tries to ins, in, implement changes in the direction of capitalism, in the direction of what China and Vietnam have been doing, to that extent, foreign investment is going to grow in Cuba. To that extent, 
uh, and with foreign investment, the pressure for other concessions. So to that extent, even on that front of national sovereignty, his legacy is, as I like to say, uncertain. But what is certain is the impact of this man not just in Cuba but in many regions around the world and whether loved or despised, his place in history assured. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. Let's go back in time to today in 1977. Egypt breaks diplomatic relations with five Arab nations that were hostile to President Anwar Sadat's peace overtures to Israel. That was today in history in the year 1977. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The Twelve Apostles Church in Christ, as well as South Africa's ruling ANC politicians in the Guazum-Natal province, have rallied around President Jacob Zuma when he attended the Church's International Day of Thanksgiving in Durban. Zuma was the guest of honor at the gathering, attended by more than 15,000 congregants from as far afield as Botswana. Church leader Caesar Nongunga has spoken out against a sustained attack on Zuma amid allegations of state capture. These allegations have led to a resolution at a national executive meeting of the ANC last week that Zuma should resign. Like Jesus, Nongunga has challenged the, pers- the person without sin to cast the first stone. Dries Libenbach reports. Addressing a mass rally in Durban, the leader of the Twelve Apostles Church in Christ, Caesar Nkunga, has come to the defense of an embattled President Jacob Zuma. Zuma was the guest of honor at the Church's International Day of Thanksgiving in the Moses Mabida Stadium in Durban. Over the past year, allegations of state capture by the Gupta family and the Zuma family benefiting from it have been piling up. Last week, A resolution at an ANC-NEC meeting that Zuma stepped down was defeated in what was called a consensus-seeking debate. With his speech being translated into his Tosa, Nongkunga said the sustained attack on Zuma is not because he has done anything wrong. If indeed, you was corrupt. Why corrupt? You hate him. We am zoned. You don't like him. I'm turned. Would you negotiate him to resign? No! No! God! You won't! It's just because you can't find a thing on him. Prove me wrong! Nongkunga has called the stormy debates the past year in Parliament a sin. He says God teaches love, peace and grace. In the words of Jesus, Nongkunga has challenged the person without sin to cast the first stone. Nongkunga said if people make mistakes, they should rather be corrected. The DA and all the opposition have to assist the government. The peaceful solutions and assist the government to improve their government. Both KwaZulu-Natal Premier Willis Nkunu and Etiguini's ANC Mayor Zandile Gumede 
also came to Zuma's defense. Gumere says the country is facing what she called its most difficult time in history. She says even those closest to Zuma have betrayed him like Judas betrayed Jesus. Gumere says those who were defeated in 1994 when Nelson Mandela led South Africa into the promised land of milk and honey are trying to take back the country. President Zuma is now fighting for us to get honey and milk, but these bees and cows are fighting him. They are refusing for us to share the milk and honey. They want us to sit in the promised land and die in poverty. Zuma addressed the mass meeting with a church member at his side who translated his speech into English. <laughs> Zuma has thanked the church for its message and said he wished other church leaders would follow Nongkunga's example. He says it concerns him that church leaders are at the forefront of trouble and getting involved in politics when they should rather bring the community and politicians together. I'm Dries Liebenberg in Durban. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, Gambia's president-elect Adama Barrow says he's keen to form a new cabinet to get cracking with reforms. The deaths of 73 newborns in southern Libya over a two-month period this year sparked serious concern and but. Botswana joined South Africa and the rest of the world in marking the third anniversary of the passing of former President Nelson Mandela. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.30 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The United Nations Counterterrorism Executive Directorate urges that a global response is needed to stop extremism on the Internet and social media. Extremist groups have been using information and communications technologies to spread propaganda, recruit generate funds, share training materials and engage in the illicit weapons trade. Some of the most popular social networking services are said to be devising strategies to counter the online activities of these groups. 
A special meeting on the issue was held at UN headquarters organized by the Security Council Counterterrorism Committee involving member states, regional organizations, civil society and the private sector. Jean-Paul Laborde, head of the UNCTED, says... Monitoring the use of language of messaging which glorifies terrorism is extremely difficult. To give uh, you an idea of the scope of the challenge involved, Facebook has 1.8 billion visitors every month and 1 billion tweets pass through Twitter every two days. So in the middle of that, if you have some messaging which carries use of a language concerning the uh, glorification of terrorism and the, the fact that they ask for the people to join them, it's extremely difficult to get somewhere this messaging. That's what is the challenge. You ask me what is the challenge? 1.8 billion visitors every month for Facebook and 1 billion tweets through Twitter every second day. So how can terrorists be prevented right now? Will this involve some kind of spying on users online? It's not a question to spy. It's a question to discuss with the uh, private companies and civil society, by the way, both. To see how to do that means that through some alerts of Twitter, of Facebook or Microsoft or whatever... And we can probably look at that in a manner which really still protect the intimacy, if it is not the privacy, uh, of the people. That's also my concern. So we are here together, private companies, member states, civil society during these two days, in order to see how to build that. And especially we have a program with ICT for Peace, which is an NGO, in order to continue this dialogue and to have some soft rules to say, hey, that the companies say to us, hey, there is a problem there. You know what mm. I mean? But not to look after every message. Because the, the magnitude I have given to you proves that we cannot look after all the messages. Even if you wanted to do that, it's impossible. We have to change our mindset. The word is not what it was before. We are almost at the same time than the time of Galileo. You remember the time that everybody was thinking that the, the earth was flat. And he said, wait a minute, the earth is round. So it's almost the same problem now. We have to look at this issue with another type of vision, another type of eyes, and check how we can do the things with the companies and the civil society while in the same time protecting our intimacy. Also, besides the intimacy you're talking about, there is the issue of human rights yes. and freedom of expression. Yes, yes and of course. So how do, you, how do you balance, ensure this balance? And this is exactly the same response. You cannot ensure the balance if you edictate some rules and say, okay, we will do this. In any case, these rules will not be efficient. Uh, what we have to know is also that uh, the hackers are very powerful. They can destroy your privacy in really a very short period of time. We should have a core a set of principles, like, as you said, the freedom of expression, the, the fact that uh, we should also protect our family life, our personal life. But also understand that even if we are also a private person, we have also a public figure in our job. So all of that has to be balanced, but we can do that. We can do that, but not in a way which is imposing on the people or imposing on the societies or imposing on the companies. That's through the, this dialogue that you can really fine-tune what you have to do and see when the companies can alert you. You say, well, look, 
there are at least uh, 10 or 13 messages which really contain messaging which is really wrong. So they can do that through alerts. This is where we are working with them to see what kind of alert they can have in order not to be too intrusive. And then, of course, in this case, we can maintain the freedom of speech. But because also freedom of speech means that this is a way also to combat this type of speech. If you give, for example, the floor to the victims of terrorist acts against impunity, you will have a very powerful message. So this freedom of speech has to be maintained. The journalists like you, when you report on the terrorist attacks also, should, of course, think over on how to say that in order not to spread the wrong message, you know what I mean? But of course, you will do whatever you want, because this is freedom of speech. Mm. How can the UN help member states in yeah. such a complicated issue, either in preventing the exploitation of these yes. uh, communications or otherwise? Uh, UN provides, and this is the opinion of all the people who participate in this meeting, and this is what they come, a unique platform which is the gathering of all these companies, all the civil society, and all the member states. You have several platforms, of course. You have also discussions on bilateral levels between member states and companies and the civil society. You have also forums for many, uh, many companies, like the World Economic Forum, which is also connecting with the public sector. But the Security Council means something. You know, so it means that if you have the companies working with us in that and the civil society, it means really something. For the first time in this story, it was uh, six months ago, one of the big companies involved in this business and these difficulties in the same time brought that to the attention of the Security Council itself. So it means that we are not entre nous anymore. As I said from the very beginning, we have to change our mindset. We have to propose also something different. And since we are the platform, then we have to share our experiences, especially uh, my office, the Counter-Terrorist Executive Directorate, under the political guidance of the Counter-Terrorist Committee of the Security Council. We assess the situation of the countries in terms of counter-terrorist capacities. Not so much the threats, because the threat, everybody assesses a threat, including journalists, by the way. But the counter-terrorist capacities is something that we have to... And here we have, for example, the, the example on how to combine human rights and the intrusive actions against this messaging when they are posted, for example, on the web. So there are very good experience in some countries, very good experience in some other countries, very good experience by the companies, and we put that together in order to share these experiences and to share these good or less good practices. You say, ah, oh, my practice is not very good. This is very good. That, that's what we do, especially, to, for example, to suppress the bad websites, you know, when this is really a website which contains a lot of messages. When we have that, when we, of course, we see that there is a... A, a very uh, bad website, then it means that member states will have the privilege to decide, based on their own legislation, if they want to prosecute or not the people, but the great majority of the countries can prosecute, because at the end we have also to have some examples, but examples only, because then think that you will prosecute everybody. Not only is this not realistic, but it is impossible. That was Jean-Paul Laborde, head of the UN Counterterrorism Executive Directorate, speaking to UN Radio's Rim Abaza. It's 8.38 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Joint United Nations program on HIV-AIDS, UNAIDS, says progress has been made in the fight against HIV-AIDS in the DRC. 
This as the country steps up HIV-AIDS-focused awareness campaigns this month. The Youth Network Against HIV-AIDS is also urging the DRC government to allow teenagers to get tested without parental consent. Jean-Noël Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. According to figures from the UNAIDS here, this country recorded 370,000 HIV-infected people in 2015, and up to now, 33% of those patients are under treatment. The prevention of mother-to-child HIV contamination that was of 8% in 2010 has reached the 66% in 2015. All this results from efforts and contribution from both the Congolese government and its partners. The UNAIDS has described the situation as a good progress, although there are still too much to do since there are big challenges to face and the DRC government needs to put more commitment. Mark Serba is the UNAIDS country representative here. In DRC, we have made a lot of progress in terms of increasing the coverage of treatment and also preventive action. But even we have made a good progress, we, we are facing challenges. And the challenges is very some key barriers which uh, prevent people to access to the services. Some people know their study, they are HIV positive, but they cannot access to treatment because they don't have you know, the means to pay the constitution fees. So we have to find solutions to improve procurement system, involvement of the civil society. Very they're committed. There is a lack of capacity. We need to empower them, build their capacity to allow them to better contribute to the testing. Why don't the distribution of the IRVs is quite possible. The Congolese government is already, it's very the political commitment. It's a good commitment, even in terms of financial commitment. But what I can recommend is to maintain and increase this and strengthen this, this commitment and also to increase the, the, you know, the national resources. We're on track, but we need more resource, financial commitment from the government side. Meanwhile, as the world celebrated the fighting HIV AIDS Day on the first day of December, the network of Congolese youth against HIV and AIDS used the opportunity to plead for teenagers free access to HIV AIDS tests. The network has called on the government of the Democratic Republic of Congo to review its law on the rights of people living with HIV AIDS in order to allow teenagers to get HIV tested out of their parents' presence. According to the network investigations, at least four youth are infected here in the DRC every day and their lack of free access to tests makes it too complicated for their treatment and prevention from infecting other people. Rachel Ndaya is the network of Congolese Youth Against HIV AIDS Coordinator. Parents do not have to worry for that because there are services ready for the teenager's psychological preparation. The person benefits from counseling and gets advice on how to take care of his life seriously. People living with HIV AIDS are not feeling at ease here. Most of them can't reveal their status since they are afraid of being discriminated at work or education places. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. 
The celebrated music icon Stevie Wonder delivered a powerful message to people with disabilities at the UN on Friday through the lyrics of his song, Fear Can't Put Dreams Asleep. The musician and UN Messenger of Peace from the United States stated that raising awareness about people with disabilities is as important as us taking the next breath. He was at UN headquarters in New York to take part in a high-level panel and commemorate the International Day of Persons with Disabilities, celebrated annually on the 3rd of December. Priyanka Shankar asked Stevie Wonder about the importance of helping persons with disabilities. It is uh, as important as us taking the next breath. We must make people aware and have the consciousness of caring about peoples with disabilities in the various communities, uh, in the various cities, states, countries, uh, throughout the world. And we must do it expeditiously. You recently encouraged a lot of countries to support and sign something called as the Marrakesh Treaty, which boosts access to books for blind. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? It is enabled uh, books that were not available for people with, you know, blind or with low vision to, for the first time, having the accessible information that is available with millions and millions of books that are being written every single year. And still, only 5% of a 300 million group of people have the ability to still have that information available to them. So we still have a lot of work to do. We need everyone to make this a reality so that no one is without having the ability to get information, making the world in their world, in our world, more accessible and available with information. What role does music have to play when it comes to helping a disabled person? Well, when you talk about the America's Treaty, for instance, I think that if information was not available to me, if I wanted to know about India, for instance, if I couldn't read about it, I'd have to create and make up something. So it makes information available to me, so therefore I'm then able to read about it and then write about it, however I would be doing that lyrically. If the information is not accessible, uh, and I don't know where certain music comes from because I can't read and find out what that is. I, I'm not clear on where and the origins of it. So, you know, no different than people that have all of their abilities. It is not uh, a right thing for us, to any of us, to, um, to be denied or not have that information. That was a U.S. musician and U.N. messenger of peace, Stevie Wonder, speaking to Priyanka Shankar at the U.N. in New York. And I'm Tabisolo Hoku with an economics update. Good morning. 
Egypt has sharply raised customs duties on more than 300 goods to 60% for many items to encourage domestic production and curb a ballooning trade deficit. This is part of a broader government effort to reform the ailing economy. The finance ministry says the tariff increases on the 320 categories of goods that target manufacturing products that are also made locally such as carpets, ceramics and cosmetics. Tariffs on carpets doubled to 60% from 30%. Meanwhile, one of Egypt's biggest lenders by assets, Bank Miz, is raising five-year syndication loan guaranteed by the country's central bank. The bank has mandated ADIB Capital and Credit Suisse to arrange the transaction, which was launched to syndication in the second half of November. ADIB Capital is the investment banking arm of Abu Dhabi Islamic Bank's Egyptian subsidiary. The Economics Association of Zambia says it's getting the sense that there is growing uncertainty in the economy in the view of the presidential petition before the Constitutional Court. Association President Crispin Mapuka says that this is mainly because the direction the Constitutional Court process will take is not known. Mapuka says the longer the court process takes, the more it will affect the country's ability to attract investment. Namibians who have technology business ideas can reach out to tech company Samsung and pitch their ideas for possible investment. This was revealed by Samsung Electronics Nordic Corporate Investment Officer Ellen Wellbeing in an interview with the Namibian on Wednesday on the sidelines of the ongoing Slush event taking place in Helsinki, Finland. Samsung had a stall at Slush where tech startups could drop their pitch of tech ideas which will all be evaluated, and Samsung will decide which ideas to buy into and invest in. The retail price of petrol in South Africa will fall by 1.5% from December the 7th. The price of wholesale diesel will drop by 2.8%. The price of 93-octane petrol will fall by 20 South African cents, with the 95-octane dropping by 20 cents. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.78 in South Africa, 10.62 in Botswana, 9.72 in Zambia, 7.8 British pound, 9.3 euro, gold 1.176 dollars, platinum 9.25 dollars an ounce, brand crude 5.3 dollars, 9.7 cents a barrel. Ace, it's all yours. It's 8.49 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now, Figula, do you think Desiree Ellis will get the position of uh, coach of uh, Bangana Bangana? Yeah, well, if anything that was said before the Africa Cup of Nations for women was said, I think uh, she's, she's they're looking, Safa is looking at, at, at getting her to be at the helm of, of the position. But also, it depends on the NEC of the of the South African Football Association, not an individual like the president has said. Mm. She can, the president can say something but and recommend, but mm. depends on the debate. We look forward to finding out the final decision. Give us an update. Mm-hmm.
In our sports update this hour, we begin with rugby now. Bledsburg coach Neil Powell was a pleased man after watching his team win the Dubai League of the HSBC World Rugby 7 Series at the weekend. The Bledsburgers started their way through the pool, beating Uganda, Scotland, and close win against the USA on day one. Powell mentioned his displeasure with a poor performance on the first day, but was equally complimentary of how his team thrashed New Zealand 14-0 in the quarterfinals before beating Wales in the semi-final and Fiji in the final. Yeah, I think uh, a good win for us, and I think um, not fully happy with our performance yesterday, especially in defence. I think a lot of made a lot of system mistakes and. Uh, and the guys came out this morning at first game against New Zealand and just um, stuck to their roles and showed what our defensive system is like when it's when it's func- uh, fully functional. So um, credit to the guys. I think um, a good game against New Zealand, a good game against Wales, and then and then another good uh, performance against a, a strong Fiji side. Powell says his team will need to get back ground zero ahead of this week's home tournament in Cape Town, and that. They will need to work just as hard if they are to successfully defend the title. Yeah, I think we had a game plan for them, especially in defence. Um, they can only really play offloads and be dangerous with their offloads if they get momentum. So, uh, obviously, try to be in their faces and take their space away. And I think the, the guys really did, did that well and almost kept them playing backwards all the time and then put themselves under pressure in, in making turnovers when, uh, when we did catch them with the ball. So, um, um, again, and I think credit to the guys that they stuck to the game plan. They, um, they implemented exactly what we asked of them, and, um, and, and, the, and then the result came by itself. So, um, yeah, I think massive art and a massive effort from the guys, especially in defense. And, uh, and it's, uh, I think it was a really great performance against Fiji. In five matches played in this competition, Banyana Banyana only managed to win one game, drawn two, and lost three matches. They finished in the same position they occupied in Namibia 2014. And Ellis, who was an assistant to Vera Powell at the time, looks at the standard of this tournament, the African Women's Championships. Absolutely agree. It's one of the better tournaments that I've been to, not just organizational, but the standard of football, the quality. Um, the uh, talent displayed uh, shows that Africa is improving. Hopefully in the future, not just at these tournaments, but in the FIFA tournaments, we can take the quality that we have and the performances that we saw here um, can go forward and uh, an African country can get beyond uh, um, the quarterfinals and hopefully win a, a, a FIFA World Cup because the quality is improving. And in Athletic Springs, legend Usain Bolt of Jamaica and distance runner star Almaz Ayana of Ethiopia have been named 2016 IWAF World Athletes of the Year at Sporting Monte Carlo in Monaco following their phenomenal performances. Our correspondent Geshem Nyati reports. Usain Bolt was nominated World Best Athlete of the Year for a record six times. He won the award for the first time in 2008, then 2009, 2011, 2012, and 2013. The Jamaican, who will go down as one of the greatest athletes of all time, was chosen ahead of two Olympic champions, Wade Vanikek of South Africa and Mo Farah of Great Britain. Vanikek won 400 meters gold in a world record time, while Mo Farah secured an amazing double in the 5,000 and 10,000 meters. Nonetheless, Usain Bolt, a triple Olympic gold medalist in the 100, 200 and 4 by 100 meter relay was adjudged the best athlete. 
Nobody else could have won the women's accolade other than Almazi Ayana. She became the third Ethiopian woman to win the award following the tracks of Mesere Tifa in 2007 and Genezebe Tipaba just last year. Ayana ran the world fastest time in her debut in the 10,000 meters in June. She sealed it off with an Olympic gold medal and a world record at the Rio Games in Brazil. Ayana was also this year's world quickest athlete in the 3,000 and 5,000 meters where she won a bronze medal at the Olympic Games. Gesho Mnyati, Channel Africa Sports, London. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine. At the Sala, Ghana's presidential candidates make their final push for votes. King and rival political parties launch election campaigns. And South Africa remembers former President Nelson Mandela. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumusara Magaza and Tutongobeni, technical producer Adrian Kenny and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. And taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa is Johnny Clegg with a song titled Asimbonanga. Asimbonanga Asimbonanga
Hasimbonanga <laughs> 